are in another series on answering atheists. Uh, this is part four. This is going to be my last response to the atheistic questions. Hopefully it has developed enough of a sense of their argument and your need to go into understanding the Word to defend the Word of God against what are basically straw man arguments. And uh, so today's study is going to be this, and that is one of their favorite concepts, God the Maniacal Maniac. God is an evil, maniacal, angry maniac in the Old Testament. He loves genocide. He loves to kill people. He's bloodthirsty. And so we're going to take a look at that. And so today we're going to understand quite possibly one of the most difficult concepts in the Old Testament is when God called for the cleansing of the land of Canaan and figure out what's behind that and to understand it. But before we do, I want to make mention as to the arguments of the new atheists. Basically, they're cherry pickers. You ever hear that term, cherry picking? Where you take probably a very difficult passage, some of the hardest passages to understand about the character of God, and they cherry pick a portion of Scripture and say, see, God is a maniac. God is angry and vengeful. He's horrible. How can you people love him? But how many of you know that within a cherry is a pit, and these people choke on the pits? But I'm telling you, respect the pit. Love the pit. Respect the pit. Why? Because in the pit is the life of the cherry. And it's a tree that can blossom out of it. So let's respect the pits. We're going to cherry pick today. And in the cherries is a pit, a big pit, that God called for the cleansing and annihilation of an entire nation. And that's hard to swallow. That's a pit when you cherry pick. But in it you will find the character and the qualities of God and His provisions for us. So respect the pit. <laughs> There's an answer of life you're going to find in it, and that's what I want to share with you today. Let's find the meaning of the pit in this cherry picking. Basically the idea is, as Richard Dawkins tells us, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's from uh, Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion, written a number of years ago, New York, best, New York seller, best time seller, people reading this. This is probably one of the main things you'll hear now a lot on YouTube's and uh, basic statements from atheists that, how can you believe in a God? Last week we looked at slavery. How can you believe in a God that just believes in genocide? He's about killing people. So, and then Christians back away from this too, and they read the Old Testament, they're going like, yeah, it's kind of tough. Kind of seems that way, doesn't it? But that's the pit we choke on, and I want to tell you there's life in it. There's something here. I'm actually happy that we have those who are coming against the Word of God. As Paul says in Corinthians, he says, there must be differences among you so that the truth will be shown. And you know what? The church needs a bunch of atheists to wake it up. 
Because we're busy having parties at the altar when the rest of the world doesn't get the understanding of the Word of God and we're not answering it for them because we don't know. And so with these atheistic accusations, we've got to go back to the Word of God and the people of God have got to have a ready answer for the hope that's within them, a reasonable answer. And so we need to understand these accusations and get back to the Word. Because you know God is a loving God. You know God is a good God. So how do you accommodate this fact that God calls for the genocide of nations and yet He's all loving and caring? That's hard to swallow. So we need to figure it out. And guys like this just remind us. I mean, he really doesn't like God. Did you notice? He hates God and the, the idea of God. But how many of you know God loves him? God loves him. God is jealous over him, wants him to come. Richard Dawkins, God loves you so much. He doesn't want you to share your love just with science. He wants you to share your love with Him. God loves Him. That's an awesome concept. So when you pray for your enemies, remember God loves them and that they're not your enemies. You used to be like that too, and you need God, they need God. Well, what's the problem? The problem is the Canaanite genocide. Did God command genocide? Did God tell Israel to kill all the tribes in Canaan well yes he did so let's figure that out and let's find out what God is talking about and how we got into this situation if you'll remember Israel was coming out of Egypt once being slaves there for 400 years they were coming out and as they were coming to the land that God promised to Abraham Isaac and Jacob their forefathers they're coming into that promised land that land was called Canaan and in that land of Canaan, while they were in Egypt, there were seven tribal nations that grew up in that land and occupied it. The Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, which were also the Phoenicians, the Girgashites, the Hivites, also known as the Gibeonites, and the Jebusites. These are the seven tribes that were still remaining in the promised land in Canaan that when Israel was coming in, God said, you need to get rid of these folks, kick them out. And so that's what we're looking at. But before we get there, how many of you know there's always a bigger story to understand? You can cherry pick one verse, but there's a broader story to understand what's happening here. And I'm going to take you on that journey. Let's start with the big picture. Do you know what the big picture is? How does God feel about nations? Well, God hates all nations, just loves Israel and some Christians, and he wants everybody else dead. No. What's the big picture? The plan of God is to bless the nations. God's heart is to bless the nations, and it's God's will that none should perish, but all come to repentance and come to salvation. How many of you know that? So God's heart from the onset, let's understand this, his promise to Abraham was that Abraham would be a blessing, and through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be what? Blessed. This is what God wants, first of all. All nations, Canaanites, Jebusites, Hittites, Parasites, any of them. He wants them all to be blessed. And so let's figure out what's going on in this story. God called a man named Abraham. He called him out of the Ur of Chaldees up to Hebron. And he said, I want you to understand what I'm going to do for you. In Genesis 12, 2 and 3, God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. 
Not only him, but all of Israel, the nation. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is God's provision through Abraham to bring blessing to all nations on the earth. So God's goal for the nations, another word for nations is Gentiles, the nation is to bless, to bring the blessings. And the vehicle he's going to come and bring this blessing through is Israel, ultimately unto Messiah, who brings that blessing. <clears throat> he said this in Genesis 13 when he was making covenant with him. The Lord Abraham said to Abram, the Lord said to Abraham, Now lift up your eyes and look from this place where you are, north, south, east, and west, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. So God is making a covenant over the land that Abraham is seeing and walking through. He walked all the way down through it to Egypt. How many of you remember Abraham went there? Back into the area and back to Hebron by the Euphrates. And as he's walking this land, God says, I am giving you this land and it will be yours forever as he made covenant with him and to your descendants forever. Chapter 15 goes on to say, Then the Lord said to him, Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, because this is the land I gave them, that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. And he goes on to verse 16, In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So what he's saying is this, Abraham's walking in this territory, God's giving it to him, saying this is the covenant land, this is precious land, covenant between you and I, and I'm giving it to you. You will have a son through that son, Isaac, he will have a son named Jacob, and through Jacob he will have 12 sons. Those 12 sons I'm going to send into bondage, into Egypt. Why? Because he says the Ammonites there have not come into the full-blown measure of their sin. The Amorites, sorry, the Amorites are a wicked nation. And he said, you need to step out of this country and go into Egypt and I'm going to incubate you because of the sinfulness of these people. They were a small family of people, 12 kids to Jacob, right? You know the story. And so as a, as a patriarchal system of a family, they didn't have that many people. They would have been eaten alive by the Amorites and the wickedness of that land and those tribes there. So God takes the family of Israel, puts them into Egypt, incubates them for 400 years till they become what? A nation. And then he says after 400 years, the sin of the Amorites will reach its full measure. So what's going on here is that the Amorites are a wicked people. And they live in that area. And they're, the, Israel's too weak to live in that area with that kind of sin, so he takes them out. And in the process, over 400 years, the sin gets worse and gets worse and gets worse. And God needs Israel to act as his judge and his authority in the earth. Abraham gets this because God did this with Abraham. How many of you remember that there was a wicked city that Abraham saw on the horizon? His nephew Lot went to live there. 
And God said the sin had grown so bad that he had sent the angels, and in fact, Jesus himself, pre-incarnate Christ, came. And they went to Sodom and Gomorrah. But before God could go to Sodom and Gomorrah, he went with Abraham, his covenant partner on the earth. And he told his covenant partner what he was going to do. Because the wickedness of those cities had gotten so bad that God was going to judge them. But before God could judge them, Abraham had a conversation with God and said, look at God, wow, what if there's 50 righteous in that place? And so Abraham is interceding, and that's what God wanted in covenant. He wanted to hear Abraham's heart before this judgment would come. Because according to Isaiah, judgment is alien work, foreign work to God. God wants to bless. God wants to bring life. Judgment breaks his heart. But judgment must come to sin. Abraham says, Father, if there's 50 righteous, wouldn't you save them? And God said, yes, I would. Yes, I would. Abraham says, yes, 50. Ah, Okay, well, maybe, maybe 40. Would you do it for 40? God says, yes. Okay, takes out his postcards of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, oh, shoot. Uh, 30? 30, I'll do it. 20? 20, I'll do it. Wow, okay. <laughs> I was just seeing. He sounds very merciful. How about 10? 10 righteous out of a population of 100,000. God said what? Yes. Again, God is merciful and God is good. For the sake of ten righteous, he would avoid judging two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he could not even find ten. He couldn't even find the righteousness in Lot's own family. He calls Lot and his wife out, his two daughters and their two husbands, and they come out. No, I'm sorry, just Lot and his two daughters, they come out, right? And then his wife turns around and she's done. But let me show you the type of wickedness we're talking about in this land of Canaan. The wickedness was so bad that incest was a normal part of their sexual relations in Sodom and Gomorrah to the fact that it was no trouble for Lot's own daughters to consider getting Lot drunk and sleeping with him, their own father. That's how wicked it had gotten. And so God brings judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah, and he uses Abraham as an intercessor and one who helps release the judgment on them. So it is with Israel. God is now going to judge Canaan, and he's using Israel as the weapon of judgment, just as he did Abraham to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so as he hears the cries of his people who want to be free from their situation, he then is ready to pull them out. And as he does, the sin of the Amorites is now full. Now consider this. He comes and Israel comes through the desert and they're ready to go into the promised land. And once they get in there, they see what seem to be giants in the land and they're scared to death and they say, no, we're not going in. God wants them to execute judges judgment to take the promised land to take Canaan they're too afraid God said I will be there with you they say forget about it and they go so what does God do who does God judge 
Israel, always remember that judgment starts in the house of God. God judges his own people for their sin before he even began to judge the Amorites and the Canaanites. Isn't that interesting? So to say that God hates other nations is not true. What God hates is sin. Not ethnic groupings, sin. That's the issue with all of this. So God judges that generation of Israelites who won't obey and go in. And now, 40 years later, till the next generation's ready to come up and take care of it, now 40 more years are added to the sinfulness of the Amorites. Have you ever thought of that? That God said their judgment, their wickedness is to such a place. I'm going to bring my tool of judgment and instrument out of Egypt to take them and to judge them, but his own weapon of judgment fails him. And now, 40 more years of wickedness is taking place in the land. You ever thought maybe it would have been a lot easier for them to conquer Canaan if they would have went in when they were supposed to? How many of you know just 40 years of wickedness can really extrapolate out? And so they go in and understand this. That God says, you need to judge them. And he says this in Deuteronomy 9 verse 5. Israel, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why was God sending Israel into the promised land? He made a promise to Abraham. Why was he using them? Because they're such wonderful, anointed, and gracious people. He loves Israelites better than Canaanites. He says, no, don't you think that. I'm using you to bring my judgment because of the wickedness of the nations. That's the issue. God is driving the Canaanites because they're Canaanites, Hittites, Gibeonites. Is that why? No. It's not ethnic. It's a sin issue. It's not genocide. It's sinicide. Genocide is ethnic cleansing. The destruction of a people group based on their ethnicity. God didn't have a problem with Canaanites being Canaanites, Gibeonites being Gibeonites, and uh, Hittites hitting the heights. He had no problem with that. The problem was the way of life, the sin. And so genocide means you kill an ethnic group because of just them being that ethnic group. God is not killing anybody because of their ethnicity. He's judging sin. The judgment of sin even started with the instrument he's using, Israel. He judged their sin, and an entire generation died. God is holy, and God judges sin. You would want God to judge sin. Believe me, you would. The problem is, we're all sinners. But we've got a remedy for that. It's a judgment of sin, and that's what God is doing. He's judging the sin of Canaan.
Let me tell you a little bit about these seven tribes and the type of depth of sin that they had. The issue is that this was holy land, covenanted together between Abraham and God. And Israel was coming back into the covenant promised land. And in the meantime, an infection had set into this land and God needed it cleansed. He needed the land cleansed. The one thing that causes a filth and depravity in a land are three main issues. Idolatry, bloodshed, and sexual immorality. Those three things... Well, broken treaties too. Those four things are four things that destroy nations and pollute a land. Let me say them again. Idolatry, bloodshed, broken treaties, and sexual immorality. How's America doing? No, this land is becoming quite polluted. Idolatry, bloodshed, sexual immorality. Do you know that the seven tribes of, in Canaan believed in bestiality. You can look at the archaeological uh, uh, papers and laws and things that they found that describe these different civilizations and part of their uh, civilization and part of their activities was uh, regularly having sexual relationships with their animals. Second, they believed and promoted incest because their gods believed in incest. Um, Baal would have incest with his mother and uh, his sister. And how many of you know what you worship you become? So if the gods are doing these things, they emulated the things that their gods did and they would have incestual sexual relationships in their family. They also worship Molech and brought forth infanticide. They were offering their own children, murdering them for the sakes of their crops and their livestock. Molech was a image of a god that have a cow head in his hands out like this a bronze um, hollowed out sculpture that they would heat up to red hot and they would take their babies their infant children and put them in the hands of this god believing that as that kid fried to death it would offer an appeasement to god their god to bring forth a better harvest not only this but they also had a involved system of temple prostitution and homosexuality. The fertility of the land, Rick Wade says, was believed to be directly connected to the sexual relations of the gods and goddesses. The people believed that reenacting these unions themselves played a part in the fertility of the land. So if they wanted good crops, which they believed that uh, rain came, coming from the sky was Baal's semen that fertilized the ground and brought forth the fruit so they would go to the temple and they in their worship they would have sexual relations with the temple prostitutes uh, of all genders and uh, bring forth good harvest and good crops it was corrupt they murdered their children they had incest they had bestiality infanticide and sexual immorality it was filth so what does God say? There's an infection in this land. This is a land that's holy. He then says, I'm going to use my people Israel to come now and cleanse the land. And so he gives Israel battle commands. And so God is talking to Israel in the form of a battle. And let me share with you some of these commands. First Samuel 15 verses 2 through 3, it says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites. Am sorry, Amalekites. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. 
Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. That's their property. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. That's just about everything you got. He says, destroy all that belongs to them. So destroy all the property. The only thing he told them to save were the fruit trees because those would be profitable to you when you take over that area. He says, destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, their lives. Put them to death, men and women. Now men we can understand. In war, they're soldiers. Then you fight and you kill the men. But the women too. How many of you know that almost all the troubles that Israel got into was, sorry ladies, through the women? That was Balaam's advice on how to destroy Israel, have them intermarry, and that was the trouble with Israel throughout its entire history going into idolatry. So he says, kill the men, kill the women. But come on, what kind of God is this? Children and infants? Really? Did you know that you're a sinner from the moment you're born till the moment you die? Sinner is a sinner. And we have a sense that, well, if it's a certain age, there should be some level of mercy. This is difficult, I know to understand, difficult to take in. But can I tell you, in this situation and in this culture, these children would grow up as depraved as their parents. Yeah, but why the cattle and the sheep and the camels and the donkeys? Because they're as unclean and polluted too because they had sex with all of them. So get rid of everything get rid of everything. He goes on here. Now these are the verses they cherry pick and say, come on, God is a maniacal maniac. He just wants ethnic cleansing. Remember, it's not about the ethnicity, is it? It's about what? Sin. Deuteronomy 20 verses 16 to 18. However, in the cities of the nations of the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. You need to cleanse them. You need to get rid of this. Now, that's hard to deal with, isn't it? That's a God that says, crush them, kill them, destroy them, anything that breathes, property, animals, people, young and old, absolutely destroy them. What I want to share with you is an understanding of this kind of a command in light of the entire context of the Old Testament Scripture. Not cherry-picking a verse. And And a hyperbole is an exaggerated statement. And what you'll find in the literature of the time of the Old Testament B.C., in much of the battlefield literature are hyperbole and battle hyperbole language. In fact, Richard Hess says this, the rhetoric of total conquest, complete annihilation, the destruction of an enemy, killing everyone, leaving no survivors, etc., is a common hyperbolic way of describing a victory in ancient Near East histories of the same period. All the literature described that. When an army would go in, they would annihilate them. How many of you here in football games? We annihilated them. We creamed them. We wiped the floor with them. 
It's this kind of an expression that's found in warfare and found in battle. God is trying to tell Israel, don't make a treaty with them. Don't be friendly with them. You have to absolutely get them out of the promised land. Let me prove to you the examples of why I believe this is battle hyperbole. Israel has now got the marching orders to wipe out those seven nations in the land of Canaan. They're ready to fight their very first battle. And what is the very first city they come to that they're going to destroy and annihilate? Anybody? Anybody? Thank you. Okay. You, man, you're getting me worried. Jericho. And as they come to Jericho... They meet someone. Who do they meet? Rahab. Anybody read their Bible in the last 30 years? Anybody? It's like, hello, Rahab, right? Is Rahab on the list of things that are supposed to be annihilated? Yes. She would be a lady, a woman. Correct? Okay. Rahab is in fact a prostitute king james harlot okay we won't go into all the different uh, if anybody but why her now wasn't it according to the word of god that anything that breathes every woman every man should be put to death yet in the very first action and in the very first invasion she's saved what does that tell you about god's heart God will save the repentant. And Rahab says this, When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, Israel, for the Lord your God, He is God of heaven and above the earth. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord Yahweh, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you would deal kindly with me and my father's house. And because she repented and turned to Yahweh, she was accepted and saved. Why do you think Israel walked around the wall for seven days? Could there have been repentance? Could there have been a change of heart? Could they have come to Christ? Rahab was the first fruits of entering into kingdom of Canaan and finding one who turned to Yahweh. And so that's why the language, I believe, that's being cherry-picked out saying God's maniacal and a bloodthirsty killer and genocidal is not true. God will judge sin, and he will reach to the sinner and save them. How many of you remember Nineveh? The same marching orders were given to Nineveh, that you will be destroyed unless you repent. And he sent his worst prophet. <laughs> He had the confidence, and Jonah finally ended up there through uh, different means and ways, and Jonah didn't even want to preach there. Repent, God's going to destroy this place, unless you repent. <laughs> he hardly preached, and what happened? They saved, and what happened to Nineveh? Did God destroy it? No. What does God want to do with nations? Bless them, and he's going to do it through Israel. Now let's go on. Secondly, in history and in their conquest of Canaan, there were actually only three cities 
completely destroyed, including their physical structures. Jericho, Ai, and Hazor. It's believed that these cities were military forts and strategic outposts. And there's no evidence that they were filled with women and children. Rahab was there because she had a business there. Okay? All right. But it was a military outpost, Jericho and so forth. And so when God had them go in, they utterly destroyed it and caused it to collapse. We don't read them destroying, though we read the passages that say destroy everything. It's hyperbolic or hyperbole language that means go drive them out, annihilate them, and get them out of here. I don't think it literally means those statements, and I'm giving you the reasons why. Because the goal was to drive them out. Here's another portion of scripture found in Exodus as they're going to take on these seven nations or tribes in Canaan, God says this, Exodus 23, 27, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you and I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hittites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive... I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you've increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and to the wilderness of the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me and serve their gods. What would you say was the intent of God with these seven tribes? Well said. He wants to drive them out. And that's what happened when they came to Jericho. They were scared to death. And she said, we heard your coming. And so as Israel advanced, the goal was to cause the, the, those tribes to be driven out of Canaan. Though the command was to destroy them. And if the people resisted, yes, they would destroy them. We go on. Let's look historically at the actual outcome. Let me share with you 1 Samuel 15, 2-8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel. Sorry, wrong spot. Deuteronomy 20, verse 11-12. When you approach a city... Oh, wait, no, let me go back. Actual outcome. Remember, God said, go and attack the Amalekites. Do not spare them. Put them to death. Men, women, children, infant, cattles, uh, camels, and donkeys. And Saul did this, except he took the king and saved his life. Now, that verse tells us that Saul destroyed all of the Amalekites, except the king. Except... Twelve chapters later, it says, Now David and his men went up, went up and raided the Gershites and the Grizzites and the Amalekites. It says earlier that Saul had destroyed, in battle language, all the Amalekites. But later on, King David comes in and he's got to fight the Amalekites. So again, it's hyperbole, battle language, that I need you to drive them out, cleanse the land, get rid of them. If they resist, yes, kill them. But 
get them out of the land and they could flee. And that is what God was trying to achieve or at least have them come to a knowledge of Him. According to Deuteronomy 20 verses 11 and 12, it says this, when you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. If it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you, make war against you and besiege them. Judges eleven eighteen. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites of Gibeon. They took all of them in battle. So Joshua offered peace. No one took it. So what did he do? Brought war to them. So God is telling them to cleanse the land and to fight against them, but through the examples of Rahab and the only cities that actually were destroyed and by the language of causing them to drive out and the opportunity for them to make peace, God is not a maniacal, genocidal maniac. He is offering mercy in the midst of justice and judgment. Can somebody say amen? amen. Israel was unlike any other army they were unique why number one israel attacked only by divine decree israel didn't go out and try to conquer the world they didn't go out and try to take whoever they could they could only go into battle when god told them to go into battle and when the time was secondly israel did not have a standing army they didn't have a professional army. They had volunteers. When David wanted to have an army, he took a census, and that got him into a lot of trouble, didn't it? And so Israel never had a professional army or a standing army. So warfare was not their purpose. Thirdly, soldiers were not paid. They couldn't even take the plunder from a city unless God let them take the plunder at certain cities. Fourthly, only prophets could call for war. A king couldn't call for war. Judges couldn't call for war. Who's ever ruling couldn't decide I'm going to go to war, though some did. We know that there were many evil kings in Israel and Judah. But only the prophet. That's why the kings would always go to the prophet to ask if they were to go to war. And so it was only by divine injunction that God told Israel when to fight and who to fight for the purpose of judging sin and cleansing the land. No other reasons. God used the same judgment against Israel. This is not an ethnic issue. This is not an ethnic cleansing genocidal issue because the same judgment that God used on the Hittites, Perizzites, Gibeonites, and Canaanites is the same judgment he used on Israel itself. When Israel sinned and their sin increased so badly, he caused Assyria to come down and take Israel out of the land and Babylon to come and take Judah out of the land. God judges sin. He's not genocidal. He's not ethnically oriented. He wants to bless the nations and bring salvation. And it was essential that Israel would take that land, cleanse the land, to prepare the land for the Messiah that was coming, which would bring the salvation of the world. So, should God judge nations? 
Should God have the right to judge sin? Well, let me ask you this question. Based on the last 100 years and a post-Christian culture, world in fact, in an atheistic, ungodly regime of governments, should God, who's the maniacal maniac here? Stalin under the Soviet Union killed 61 million people. In the Armenian slaughters, 1 million people. Hitler through the Nazi regime, 11 million, 6 million Jews, 5 million others. In Cambodia, 2 million people in 1975. In Bosnia, 100,000 Bosnian Croatians in 1991. In Rwanda, 800,000 murdered in 1994. In the Sudan, 300,000 killed and 2 million displaced in 2003. Should God judge the nation? Should there be justice for this kind of behavior? Or is it too barbaric? God wasn't judging people because of their ethnicity as these people were. God was judging sin. And God will judge sin. And ultimately, God's greatest act of judging sin came at the cross. For God came to bless the nations through the land that God had given to Abraham and through the land that God had given to Israel to protect the land and provide in the land so that the Messiah would come and God would bring his final wrath and judgment upon the one who through his mercy came to die for you and I. The judgment of God is holy and right and pure. And the judgment against sin came in that holy land for you and I through Christ Jesus. Thank God for that. Amen? Amen. God is not a maniacal maniac. He provided a righteous way of escape for all us sinners who deserve His judgment. In conclusion, let me give you the bigger, bigger story to wrap this all up. To take a bird's eye view all the way back. No, a view from heaven. It says in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 8, that the Lord planted a garden in Eden. And there he put the man whom he formed. And a river watered the garden, flowed from Eden to the garden. So what you need to understand is that in Eden, Eden was a territory. And in the territory of Eden, God put a garden. That's why we call it the Garden of Eden. All right? So there was a territory called Eden. Now, many believe that it's in the Fertile Crescent between the Tigris and the Euphrates over here. But I'm going to give a speculation to you today and contend that I believe quite possibly Eden, the territory of Eden, is here. As it's described in Scripture between the Tigris-Euphrates and the Pishon and Gihon rivers. Now, this is not the geography before the flood. It looked different before the flood. And so I'm postulating that Eden, where the garden was placed, might and quite possibly could be in this place. 
Because God called Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees onto Haran and told him to walk the land north, east, south, and west. Remember, Abraham made it into Egypt. And so he is claiming this land as his covenant land and God is going to cleanse the land from those who inhabit it. And as Israel comes out of Egypt, they're coming into the promised land and they establish Jerusalem or the city of Zion. And they were to purify this land to make way so that Messiah could come and be the sacrifice and the offering here in Jerusalem in the promised land as to what I quite possibly believe was Eden. And the place and the reason why this land needed to be cleansed and why this piece of real estate is still in the headlines today. And it is in fact where Jesus Christ is coming to return to bring the new Jerusalem. In the perspective of all things, God needed this land cleansed and he needed his people there to prepare for the kingdom of God to be established through Jesus Christ's sacrifice so that in when all is accomplished and all the nations are blessed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven and reestablish that Eden, that holy land that God had made. Remember, Jesus opened the tree of life of the garden for eternal life through the cross. And in that, I believe restoring Eden and eternal life so that when the city of God comes, God will dwell with man in the headquarters of the promised land. That's why God had to have that land cleansed. That's a big pit to swallow from a little cherry picking. But I hope it gives you a perspective on how great God is. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father, you are awesome and glorious in all your ways. Father, I pray right now that we would understand your heart.